welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today, chatting with Eddie Parker. So, flutes at hand and get ready for some jazz talk. So welcome to you, lovely listener. But what a sad week it's been with the news of the death of Chick Courier. And he's going to be greatly missed, of course, by so many. But today is also Mardi Gras, well in New Orleans at least, and also Shrove Tuesday. So time to don your beads and get tossing, or whatever you do. Uh, But moreover, and more excitingly, I cannot wait to introduce my special guest today. And it is Eddie Parker, flautist, pianist, composer, and of course, for long time Watford Jazz Junction podcast listeners, seminal member of big band stonkiness, Loose Tubes. Eddie, thanks for joining me. How are you? Greetings. I'm all right. Yes, thank you. Yes. I think the question that I keep asking you at the minute is, how is lockdown treating you? Uh, well, uh, it's it's quite well, actually, is the answer to that. Um, I'm um, fortunate enough to live in a wonderful place. Yeah. And um, here in Gloucestershire in the Forest of Dean. Ooh. And, um, you know, it's it's beautiful. And I mean, it, living in a rural place like this means that you are exposed to the elements rather more um, and they really have an impact on you. So last week when it, we had that Siberian cold, it was banging cold, as they say, you know. Um, at this time of year, it's um, it's quite wet and muddy as well. Muddylicious, as E. Cummings says. <laughs> the, uh, oh, a literary reference so early on. <laughs> the talk there of nature, you, you've sprinted me ahead to something I was going to ask towards the end. A photograph appeared this morning on my Twitter of uh, Dudu Bukawana on, in the snow. And it then reminded me, I've seen a YouTube video of you playing flute in the snow. I was wondering, <laughs> have you been out in the snow again with the flute? um yes i have actually and um yeah that relates to a kind of slightly longer term project but the project that i'm involved in at the moment uh, which is the one that i got arts council funding for was to kind of get me head around this new technology you know um so i can do streaming and things like that but it i've been involving some uh visual artists and you know kind of local local visual artists because i want there to be a um, a nice visual component to what i'm doing as well as the music you know yeah and uh, i've got a friend who's got a drone uh with a camera on it and right. uh, he went uh, a couple of weeks ago when we did have uh, a bit of a layering of snow. I mean, unfortunately, it's not really been that much snow. It's, you know, you get a kind of layering and it lasts for about a day and then it just turns into this horrible muddy slush. On that day, he came up with his drone and took some footage of me playing the flute in the garden from, you know, and then swooping away into the air and that kind of thing. So it's it's rather nice, you know. Um, yeah, amazing. I, I, I've got this idea. I mean, lurking, when you live in a place like this, you can't help but have it affect you and have some effect and impact upon you, you know. And the... The sort of the time-honoured um, subject of the passage of the seasons. I mean, it's just inexhaustible, really. Um, yeah. And there are all kinds of other related um, things to that. So I, I see myself at some 
point in the future of putting together a kind of, you know, like a year in here where where I live, you know, yeah. um, with all the different kinds of weather and, and things that you get, you know. Do you find the the environment and the changing of the seasons affects your your sort of mental outlook? Not necessarily your wellness. Oh God, yeah. But I was chatting with my brother last week, and we were talking. We got on sort of mental wellness a bit and environment, and we were talking about you know where do you do your best listening? Is it in the car? No. Is it when you're walking? Yes. And that relationship with the environment. Do you find that actually what you write and what you create does just change seasonally? Or you've written something, but then how you might perform it will alter depending whether it's summer or winter. Um, I think the the season and the weather um, impacts on you um, emotionally and mentally in, in terms of your mental health. Yeah. You know, what, One thing that happens here is um, I suppose it's because of the relationship of the of the house to the garden and the sur surrounding trees and landscape mm. but the light um, and sometimes the absence of light really has an effect on you yeah so you know in the winter months things tend to get very um, interior you know and you you're absolutely gasping i mean we have to go out every day because we have to take the dog for a walk absolutely we have to come hold on not take L the listeners will need to know what dog what type? <laughs> uh, I have a collie yeah. um, called Dilly. Nice. And uh, she's a typical black and white collie, highly intelligent. You know, she reads Sartre in the original French. <laughs> and um, and she, she just understands everything. And she's utterly relentless. Right. So um, when you're in the house, she brings you the ball all the time, wanting you to throw the ball across the other side of the room. When you're outside, it sticks. She'll bring you a stick and <laughs> make you throw it. So, yeah, she keeps us on our toes and she's gorgeous, you know. Love um, it. So she's she's out there taking you out into the, the great unknown of the forest. And yeah. I'm just remembering that the beginning of this question was lockdown and lockdown here. So um, on the one hand, there's there's that side of things, the environment kind of thing. Um, I mean, surely it has an effect on mentally on you because you you can't see people. So, I mean, unless it's like this and Zoom meetings and things like that. And does something to your head that without you knowing that it's doing it. You know, because there's something about actual physical proximity to other human beings that it can't be reproduced. And, you know, despite all the wonderful technology, this is one thing that musicians, are, you know, are having to cope with is there's no substitute for actually being there with an audience and being there physically present with other musicians. Um, yeah, that's that's it. So there's lockdown has had that effect but um i'm absolutely certain that other people are in a far worse position than me so I'm, i count my blessings you know and um and then the other side of things is your one's musical activity which and how, how has that becomes... been has that been something you've squirreled away at in your own in this sort of hibernating yes. state yeah Yes, it has really. Um, I mean, I was never one that that did like you know seven gigs a week, 
anyway. Right, yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's been extremely rare for me to be in that position in my working life. Um, very, very occasionally it's happened. But mainly it's like one gig every three months or something. And I'm, I'm, and I've been blessed by the fact that that one gig is usually a pretty um, substantial thing, playing with fantastic players and appreciative audience and all of that. But I, I have been doing a few things, and I've been writing and uh, various things, and I've also been um, uh, collaborating online with um, the percussionist Simon Limbrick um, and we've been putting together quite a few things I'm hoping that I mean we keep calling it the CD in inverted commas <laughs> <laughs> as if those things exist anymore you know but um, who knows what format but some I mean we're building up quite a, a repertoire of, of stuff now so the um, just just out of interest, when you're collaborating like that musically, the the big word of the day seems to have been that we've all learned in the last eighteen months, if you're musical in any way, is latency, and trying to, <laughs> you know, there is no yeah. simultaneous thing, and even if you're using something like Clean Feed, it's still not quite there, and that must be deeply frustrating for for you and for Simon, I guess. It's the the deeper thing. You got it. <laughs> um well it depends and now one thing that i've learned um through kind of trying to get my head around this new technology is um or i should say relearned is the virtue of patience because technology is wonderful and fantastic when it works but it can be extremely frustrating and it, it depends on a lot of uh, variables so for one thing um, I discovered very early on um, and then through repeated mistakes <laughs> that you have to be directly plugged into the Ethernet uh, Ethernet cables right. rather than Wi-Fi because the Wi-Fi is Wi-Fi is is just um, horrible for causing latency and then um uh I'll get on to the the uh, the software things in a minute as though I'm sounding like <laughs> an We should be we should be plugging stuff Eddie. We should be plugging stuff. <laughs> Just going and also and that. <laughs> well uh, yeah, well I I will in a minute because it is brilliant, you know. Um one thing that I found through kind of family phone calls is the sound on Zoom is utterly horrible and I'm sitting there like this half of the time because it does it emphasizes the high frequencies on on a phone you know on a mobile phone and um uh, and trying to do some teaching on zoom and even worse um teams oh my god it's just pathetic you know you might as well just be using carrier pigeons um it can also depend on the internet traffic where you are and what what time of day it is so Simon says, um, Simon Limbrick, who's my kind of uh, mentor, my um, my guru in, in all of this, he's pretty au fait with it all. Um, he says that sometimes he does things with um, colleagues in London. He lives in Norfolk. And um, he says that sometimes they just have to give up. You know, if he's playing, trying to play with somebody in London, the latency is so bad. 
and the and not just the latency but the 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 way that it breaks up all of that stuff um is is just horrible so he has to give up but most of the time when we've been doing our thing uh, so from Norfolk to Forest of Dean it's 220 miles and uh, you know we do the clap test one two three four clap and we're absolutely blob on There's something like a, a 13 millisecond latency, which is nothing really. We've we've done some very exacting music together. The way to get round it and the way that a lot of people get round it is to do free music where that kind of absolutely microsecond um, interaction is not that crucial and or slow floaty music. You know, um, yeah, yeah, where yeah. you know it, 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 you, you know, it's different from playing kind of semi-quaver funk music, but you just can't do that if there's latency. And I, I admire the people that have tried to do that and and kind of won against the latency, but that's horrible. I mean, that's like trying to use a pair of tweezers wearing boxing gloves. You know, um, you play something and it appears a second later. Oof, that's that takes a real skill to do that, and I, it's way beyond me. Technologically speaking, software advert here. There's a wonderful, wonderful program called uh, Sonobus. It's the solution to the problem because um, it's got no kind of add-ons. You know, it does mean, however, that you have to have um, an audio interface and a and a microphone and headphones. But the sound quality that you can achieve is extremely high. And so that's amazing, you know, and Simon and I have been able to do some very, as I say, very exacting, exacting music. Um, we're trying to get together a, a, an arrangement of a Webern piano piece arranged for percussion and flutes. And, and it's quite a nifty piece. And it's, you know, I mean, um, doing it not on uh, just just doing it live would be demanding enough you're, you're you're getting me thinking now that for all the sadness of not having the human contact the technological evolution here that you were talking about there's there's a real plus side not just on being able to do it in this lockdown but from a carbon footprint type type of view i mean i.e simon yeah. could be in norfolk virginia right and hopefully it would still be the same principle and that you can connect with people and I don't think that's necessarily brilliant for human existence, but in terms of human potential of being able to, you know, link up like that and still create, I think it's absolutely staggering. Absolutely. And and that's um, uh, what my project is about. That's the other half. Part, uh, so part of the project is to get me, to try to get me up to speed with using this stuff, um, which is a mountain in itself, believe <laughs> me, because I'm, I'm rubbish at all this stuff. Um but the other thing is um, to explore new creative possibilities. Hence my collaborations with some visual artists yeah. who've got some fantastic ideas, you know, like uh, to do with animation and um, and a, having a sort of non-narrative narrative. Because basically what I what I'm want to be doing is presenting my music, but 
I don't want to do it in a kind of static camera. Here I am playing. I've, I've seen absolutely tons of this kind of thing, you know, where the people are using just the static camera and yeah, they're yeah, recording yeah. themselves playing. And the playing may be incredible. The music may be incredible, but it looks really boring. So I want to try and get beyond that. And hence my um, doing collaborations with visual artists, but also with hopefully um, with your Norfolk, Virginia as well. Sure. So I've got a friend in Thailand. I've got contacts in South Africa, Norway, you know, wherever that, that I've played with. Um, and and to be able to do kind of duos with people on the other side of the world is, is just a fantastic thing you know that uh, as well as the as the the more conventional you know like uh, the Jacob Collier thing where he's he's got himself overdubbed and there's lots of little screens of him I've always thought oh, how the hell do you do that you know now I know <laughs> well, he, he's he's one of Watford's own we're gonna have we're gonna have Jacob because he went to school around here uh -huh. yeah, you never know one day I might reel him into here and he's gonna <laughs> Fantastic. He can uh, revel in the influence he's had, but the say hi from me. <laughs> yeah, Eddie says hi. Um, so, just for the record, what's that piece called? What 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 will we be looking out for once you finish it? Has it got a working title? Uh, yes, uh, the overall thing is called Moon Waves. Right. Uh, and for the for the duration of my project, I'm looking at three pieces. Um, and at the moment, the one that I'm working on is um, with Simon Limbrick on percussion, and that's called O Celine. So they're all the three pieces are all um, on the theme of the moon in some way. The second one is um, with a friend of mine in Thailand. Um, he's actually an ex-student of mine um, from, you know, 25 years ago, or whatever. But he's a saxophone player and... There's um, a Buddhist festival of the third full moon mm. of the, the lunar ca calendar. That's coming up in a few weeks. So I thought it would be nice. That's a nice kind of tie-in with my moon theme. A double pun. Tie-in. You see? Shirt and tie. You're on fire! <laughs> <laughs> There's no stopping me. Um, and then the third one, I don't know yet because i'm kind of at the foot of the empire state building kind of thing yeah. um uh, but i'm hoping that that is going to involve some south african musicians or at least one south african musician i, mean, I keep wanting to go off on tangents but i'm going to try and bring this back to some sort of date order so for me eddie parker came into my sort of conscience uh with loose tubes what was what was Eddie Parker up to before the mid 80s? What was your sort of journey in a potted history? Yeah. Uh, well, I came from a classical music family. Um, right. And uh, my dad was um, a working musician. Uh, in fact, my, my mum was a dancer, had been a dancer, you know, uh, before her full time occupation became bringing us up, you know, um, and that's how they met. Uh, so. They were always, you know, um, professionals in the sense of doing shows and seasons here, there and traveling around the country and so on. And my dad uh, was also a musical director of shows and theater in the in what became the variety years. 
And right. so, you know, we would be sitting watching the, the telly and Bruce Forsyth or somebody would come on and, and mum and dad would always say, oh, yes, we worked with him, you know. Um, uh, Googie Withers within right. these walls. Uh, Alfie Bass. Oh, lots of people. Max Wall. Um, yeah. Anyway, so now, although my dad did kind of commercial music and variety music, as as his profession um that wasn't really where his heart lay he was really a a, a classical pianist yeah and um so at home he played classical music you know beethoven mozart um bach and lots of debussy and so that that was a huge kind of Im influence on me at a very early age hence much later on the Debussy mirrored project yeah um, which we'll come back to yeah uh, I was lucky enough to have that influence at a very early age and there was also music that that in my um kind of late teens 20s 30s I would have run a million miles away from things like Schumann and Schubert and right. um you know that kind of middle romantic music I was ran away from until quite recently, really. Um, but uh, my sister bought me a flute when I was uh, 10, 11 years old. And I started on the, the kind of classical path. I mean, mm. you know, I, I was already on it because my dad had started me on the piano when I was four years old. And I'd got to a certain point with that. And then... Um, I, I kind of I let it I let it vegetate for a few years uh, and then I started kind of picking it up again on my own without any particular tutors um, but the flute I carried on with teenage years I, I started off you know I remember when I was about 12 or 13 years old hearing Jethro Tull um, and that was just like that's what you're doing you know um, oh, yeah. that's what you want to do and then there were other kind of bands so we're talking about 1972 73 there were other sort of um, prog rock things around at that time which I was really into you know um, so you know by the time I was 15 16 years old um, I was listening to King Crimson and Focus and um, different things like that and then I also I had a neighbour who I've lost touch, touch with now many years ago um, Christy who was um, a very dear friend at the time and uh, he w had hugely eclectic musical tastes and he was into jazz of the kind of mostly bebop and earlier but you know um, some more modern things as well 
and he was into loads of um, traditional folk music from different parts of the world but particularly Irish traditional music and not much classical music uh, so I, I had a kind of input from him of a kind of broadening of my musical horizons but also at the same time I started checking out things like Stockhausen uh, yeah so so I used to go down to the uh, the central lending library in Liverpool and come away with an armful of huge oversized music scores and uh, vinyl records you know of things like uh, Stockhausen and um, Boulez and and different things like that and I really 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 got into that I wanted to check out all of the flute playing from everywhere in the world every possible you know so from sort of um, James Moody through to you know Javanese gamelan suling playing and all, all kinds of stuff you know so that meant that by the time I got to university, which was York University, are you to are you to blame for their gamelan room? I remember going for an interview at York, and uh, and a fantastic gamelan set up there. It was all we were all sort of talking Arvo Pet, and then it got a bit deeper, and they took me into the inner sanctuary. And it's this fantastic room. There was a gamelan. There was a gamelan there. Yes, definitely. Oh no, I mean my my York days or the best days of my life well not really they weren't but they were pretty high up there and what I discovered was that you know I went from being pretty much the only person that I knew in Liverpool who was into Stockhausen, Boulez, you know Javanese Gamelan, Irish traditional music, bebop, Keith Jarrett, Mahavishnu Orchestra, you know, at, with this fantastically eclectic sort of smorgasbord of of, um, of of music that I knew and that I was into. When I arrived uh, at York, I discovered that, like, everybody was into Stockhausen and Boulez and <laughs> Ligeti and Berio and people like that, and and Indian music and Javanese music and, and, and actually not so much jazz. So that was a bit of a funny turnaround for me, you know. Um, there were a few people, but but we were quite on our own with it, really. I mean, there, there were many very, very influential musicians, people, some of whom were fellow students, some of whom are lecturers or yeah. visiting lecturers or whatever. And so um, the clarinetist Alan Hacker was pretty significant for me because once he kind of sussed that I was a jazzer, he suddenly went, ah, right, ah, now I know what to do with you, you know, because <laughs> I was a so-so classical flute player, you know, but my he, he kind of sussed that I, my thing was jazz and improvised music. And so he introduced me to um, Tony Coe yeah. and... Um, and Tony Oxley, okay, uh, and and a few other musicians who were who were you know um, who came to York as part of the, the the touring kind of thing. Some of whom Alan played with, but Tony Oxley was was fantastic, and he said, um, "Right, you've got to come to the Barry Summer School." as it was in those days, you know. So I'm talking about 1978, 79. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in, in those days, Tony Oxley ran the Barry Summer School in South Wales. 
and there were two parts to it. One was the the sort of the jazz part, right? Um, um, and the other was the free Im- improvisation part. And I was just about the only person really that used to hop around from one to the other. So you know, I'd spend the morning with John Taylor, you know, doing fantastic chords and stuff on the piano. And then in the afternoon, I'd hop over and I'd be playing with Evan Parker. And, wow. You know, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely amazing like that for me. I hoovered that up, you know. And that sort of, that kind of eclecticism has remained with me. Although, you know, in your professional life, you become more, you know, you've got to go where the work is, I suppose. And, and you you... It's still, unfortunately, it still is very much a compartmentalised music scene. If you get known for doing, uh, you know, standards and, and bebop and that kind of thing, you end up not doing anything else, you know. If if you if you get known for being a free player, you end up not being asked to do standards and, and you know, that kind of thing. And the other thing that happens is if you, when you start to create your own music and become a band leader... You, that's another reason why you're not asked to be in other people's bands because everybody kind of goes, oh, he's got his own thing, he's all right, or she's all right. That's interesting. I was listening to a podcast about Max Roach um, the other day. I was talking about that he played on all those fantastic records from the 40s and the 50s, but it wasn't until quite late on that he was invited to consider leading a band. And even at that stage, there was some reticence because I guess it comes with a loaded sense of... Because he was such a flexible player, right? He could go from anyone and play sensitively to how they played. And I guess that sense exactly of what you're saying, of being a band leader, it's like, well, that's not what I want. I don't want to be defined by the Max Roach style or in this sense, you know, the Eddie Parker vibe. It, I'm many things. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's still like that now. And it was like that 40 years ago. And, and really, nothing much has changed in that regard. Plenty yeah. has changed, of course. Sure. But in, in, in that s- sense of being, you know, that that person plays free. Yeah. You know, or that person plays tunes, you know. Yeah. Or yeah. that person is a classical player. Or this person is not a classical player it's, it's gibber it's like this is what you are and i can't i can't be doing with that in life so it's good to hear it now you've set yourself up perfectly here for my loose tubes foray because there are so many routes into that band with multiple leaders with multiple styles with multiple influences and i guess for you the first true offering where you presumably an eclectic going everything here makes sense and yet the potential to create whilst there's so many reference points because you've got, what, 20-plus players, what you created then, and this is to my humble ear, was absolutely looking forward and, and going places. It had all the right reference points to say, well, this is a style we've taken on board, but this is new, this is different. And when you hear some of the improvisations on there, then, you know, listeners, if if you haven't listened to any Loose Tubes, do. I would recommend Open Letter. It's just the most fabulous album talk about influences it's cock-a-hoop with them and some nice eddie parker tracks in there your band their band the band of lots of people was presumably a very exciting period for you oh god yeah yes and and that's one of the um fantastic brilliant times of my life i mean definitely definitely it was you know um uh, loose tubes just kind of hit um 
Oh, I've just remembered what the question was from before. What was I doing before Loose Tubes? And the answer was I did uh, some stuff with John Stevens, as in Spontaneous Music Ensemble, John Stevens. And I was also in an early version of Human Chain, Django's group, which was called Humans. And that involved drummer Dave Trigwell, who's just sadly died just a few weeks ago. Bless him. What an incredible player. Mick Hutton and then Steve Berry on bass. And um, Steve Arguelles was on drums, um, you know, uh, in the, the latter part of that. So, you know, I was doing I was doing things um, before Loose Tubes up to up to a point, you know happened was in in loose tubes was you know there were there were certain kind of pace setters in the band yeah so you know you had the writers and you had the 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 players and and a a number of people did both things of course some people were just players and of those people some people were soloists improvising soloists yeah yeah, yeah. other people just played the dots and and so it was it was a, a lovely kind of cooperative feeling of of everybody bringing their different skills and different influences and voices to to the thing you know in the in the early days steve berry and django um, started bringing their own compositions and arrangements and it began to take on its own distinct kind of voice and vibe and there was a there was a kind of recognition of certain influences in in what they were doing in what they were bringing so for example django brought this arrangement of a weather report piece called young and fine okay which is i think on mr gone and it was a fabulous arrangement i mean django was already kind of meteoric in his abilities you know he was just sort of he made everybody else feel as though they were standing still you know what i mean yeah 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 prodigious abilities um so he not only heard what was going on in this quite dense music you know if when you listen to the original there's the, the harmony is complicated. The, the voicings are not obvious. It moves from chord to chord in a mysterious way. And then there's also what's happening in, in the, the kind of textures, the layers. And, um, and then there's the improvisations and how it all fits together. And Django heard all of this and then notated it for Loose Tubes in a way that allowed for people also to improvise with it. And and it just became a sort of, um, it became a bit of a band anthem for a while. Yeah, yeah. And it was a way also of, of kind of recognising the, the enormous significance of Weather Report and Weather Report-related musics, if you like. So... You know, the thing about Weather Report is it is also highly eclectic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to me, it's Weather Report is like it's, it's like a portrait of America that welcomes in, you know, all these different influences. So, like, you've got some fairly traditional jazz, mainstream jazz things going on in, in there, you know. Uh, what's it? Uh, that track that Zarwan yeah. does on his keyboards, yeah. you know, it's a bop riff, right? Yeah, and um, and uh, and there's uh, other things like that, and then there's the Hispanic influence in there. 
Brazilian and Cuban sounds in there and rhythms. I think Weather Report did that and they showed away. But I think in terms of influences, what you get when you get to lose tubes, which is removed from the whole American tradition, you've learned it all and you've known it. You really just go, hold on, there's a whole world. And this isn't just about Cuba. They were about Africa. We've got Asia. You've got all of these things come together. And you didn't seem to be too precious about it. And that's what I love. And you can hear that. But it's just yeah. the joy of playing it. And so it could be a Scottish tune or it could be from the township. It, it could be anything, but you're going to yeah. play it in your way. Um, and I just, I, honestly, I just think it's just most amazing music. But I tell you what you can do for my next question. And uh, forgive me, dear listener, <laughs> but um, I want to ask Eddie what his main influences are uh, for him as a player. But there's a little bit in one of the one of the pieces um, <laughs> Who are your, your main, main influences? Richard Cook, <laughs> Jack Mazaru. Now, I want to know Burn. who 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 are who is Richard Cook? And is it Jack Mazarau? I couldn't I can never quite hear it. Mazarak. Mazarak. Who are these people? Yeah. Why were they influential? Actually it's Mazarik. Well they they were they were music journalists that, that had it in for Django. Ah. And it's a bit naughty, you know. No. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, I love it. Do you know, I, I, I do think about this from time to time because it's like as one gets older as a, as a musician, it's possible to get yourself in a resentful headspace of looking around at the new, the younger musicians that are emerging and suddenly they get all the, 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 the platform and the, the spotlight is on them and suddenly you're seeing their name everywhere yeah. and you know you become resentful mm, well and and that's what some people were like with loose tubes mm, sounds like a cop out to me you know someone said uh, sounds like um, 70s American cop music to me you know and, and all this this kind of yeah. stuff you know and and so, uh, yeah, there were there were various people that that decided that they hated us, and used their platform, uh, national newspapers and stuff like that, um, to do us down. Hey, yeah. And at the at that time, you know, we were all twenty something. We were immortal, and we just laughed it off. And that that song was part of that. You know, it was a way of saying get stuffed absolutely <laughs> um we don't care you know <laughs> um so influences yeah what are your main influences okay <laughs> so within within jazz um i'd say you know that there are there are the sort of canonic influences in terms of the received vocabulary so that's got to be that's your history of jazz kind of thing you know louis armstrong and and charlie parker and and all of that and then leading up to the 1960s i would say that you know john coltrane is a huge influence and certain things that miles davis um was doing and and then the people that came out of miles davis uh, who played with Miles Davis in in his kind of rock period, um, or you know, fusion period? So we've talked about Weather Report, Keith Jarrett, huge influence, the late great Chick Corea, uh, John McLaughlin, Mahavishnu Orchestra. So that's on one side. Then the the uh, um, the the British, the UK artists. So John Sermon, John Taylor, Kenny Wheeler. Evan Parker, 
and the free side of things as well. I guess John Stevens up to a point, Tony Oxley. And what about what about the classical canon or the folk music of the world? I'm just interested, you know, because the jazz stuff is, is obviously what I'm really into sure. here and, and it's good to yeah. hear. But I think in terms of the, the breadth of the of the canvas where you choose your, your colours. Well, again, there's the canonic thing that, you, you you know, you can't really... I mean, maybe I don't need to mention all of that, but Bach and, you know, I always ran away from Mozart, but I've no doubt that there is an influence from Mozart and Beethoven and people like that. Do you think it's possible not to have an influence from the um, from that period of, of well, creativity? It, it's... I mean, it's gone into the kind of bedrock of musical vocabulary you know so as soon as you're working within the diatonic system there's going to be vestigial traces of of that stuff in there you know but also uh, i guess as you if you if you start kind of digging around and reading about it and exploring it and listening to it with different ears you know there are things you know i can hear that there are connections so let me just say let me just say that I I've, I've been more interested in the um, the modernists if you like S- starting with Debussy, Stravinsky, Bartok, Hindemith, Messiaen, and then we we start to get into the the modern the avant-garde so people like Luciano Berio, Stockhausen, Boulez, Ligeti, um, and then Steve Reich. So for example with Someone like Hindemith, you, that's what you might call neoclassical or neo-baroque. When I was at York, composers like Hindemith were really frowned upon by, by the very with it composer composerly lot. Um, they thought that it was um, you know terrible throwback kind of thing, um, and I think that uh, they did that music uh, quite an injustice because there is a lot going on in there. And if you open your ears and listen to it with unprejudiced ears, you can hear that there's there's a lot of inventiveness in there, and there's a lot for us now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, to to grab hold of, but Hindemith was also um, it's it's fairly obvious that all of that bark contrapuntal stuff lies behind what Hindemith was doing, and then. Um, there's people like Weber. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's incredible when you think that a, a lot of that music is from 100 years ago. You know, you listen to Weber now and it's, you know, it's it's plinky-plonk avant-garde music. Yeah, yeah. Now, what the hell's going on? What's happened to our ears in, in all of that time, you know? that That's why one of the... Uh, that's why, you know, going back to the thing that I'm doing with Simon Limbrick, um, we're, we're doing a Weber piece... And it's a kind of way of of uh, tipping the hat to w- one of the um, one of the influences, if you like, one of the, the one of the kind of seminal people that said music doesn't have to be about tunes and chord sequences and that kind of thing. It can be about sound, you know, and how that relate relates to the free improvisation thing, and 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 not just that, but the way that that kind of attitude. Um, towards the resources of musical sound uh, can go into other kinds of music that might you, one might want to explore, you know. I mean, I might, I might come back and knock on your door again at some point to talk about the difference or the realities of music versus sound 
and what is it that makes sound into music, etc. You know, you're referencing Messiaen, you're referencing Debussy. From, you know, purely a listener's perspective, what is the difference between sound and music is quite a profound question. But in the interests of time, and it's been unbelievably exciting speaking to you and hearing so much, and I have a feeling we could do another hour, and I would just be like, keep talking, sir. Um, <laughs> three albums that you would recommend okay. take with you no matter what or ensure that others listen to because you've taken a lot out of them oh gosh <laughs> uh i mean this this can't be definitive i mean i've thought about me desert island discs many times before you know but i mean really I, actually that changes as you go through life so you know it, it used to be um new high kenny wheeler with keith jarrett dave holland jack dejonette um, Eric Dolphy, Out to Lunch. Nice. Oh, it's our second Eric Dolphy. Um, Faye McCallman was well into recommending Eric Dolphy's, some of his music. So, yeah, and it's not surprising. Yeah. Oh, who else would it have been? Um, uh, Visions of the Emerald Beyond, Mahavishnu Orchestra. That's, that's one version of the three mm-hmm. albums. I would counsel people to listen to... Uh, Luciano Berrio's Symphonia, uh, which is a wonderful, vast orchestral piece with vocal group. Um, And one of the movements in it is a collage, a musical collage, um, which um, at at the the base of it is this um, movement of a Mahler symphony. And uh, so it goes. And it just carries on like that underneath. And then over the top of it is all this other music. And sometimes it gets completely buried. And then a big row happens. And then the row finishes and the mala carries on underneath. Like a train emerging from a tunnel, you know. There's a composer called Trevor Wishart. Who, now I know that name. Why do I know that name? Well, he was a, a York. He is a York-based composer. He's done tons yeah. of stuff which is to do with extended vocal techniques. Um, but he was the composer in residence at, at York when I was a student there, or at least in the first year. So this would have been in 1978, I think, 78, 79, in my first year. And he made this piece in the studio, electronic studio, called Redbird. And it's, what would you call it? It's not electronic music because it, there are no electronic sounds in it. It's all using found sounds and, and real sounds. Um, and this was in the days before uh, the digital kind of thing, um, where he works these transformations on sounds. So, for example, the sound of a, a big book slamming closed, clunk, like that, repeatedly, um, gets gradually transformed into the sound of a prison door banging shut with loads of echo on it. And he did that, you know, just using hundreds of bits of tape and, you know... Um, the massive reverb unit at York University and all of that, you know. Um, and it's a, a, a work of astonishing detail and also incredibly meticulous 
working out as well because he he was uh, he was a very influential uh, composer really um totally sussed in terms of what he wanted to say and how he was going to say it and so it's got a the subtitle is a political prisoner's dream and it's so and it's a kind of anarchistic mm. statement if you like so the idea is the book is the book of reason um which turns gradually into a prison door imprisoning us in this kind of rush, rational emotionless world so yeah redbird right that is an extraordinary recommendation we will take that thank you very much this is great and uh number three number three um, God, tell me it's the new steps album well uh i think i would just change direction completely there and say let's say stevie wonder oh what's the album called it's the one that's got inner visions inner visions stevie wonder inner visions it's a wonderful 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 record marvelous thank you very much well you've you've gone you've doubled us down there with six album recommendations and some amazing insight into the production uh especially with the trevor wishart one what that's fantastically uh rich and interesting knowledge so thank you for sharing that my final question or potential gift to you i'm going to introduce you eddie to our house band um, so up front at the minute, we've got Vi Red on alto, Mark Nightingale on trombone and Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet. And in our back line, we have Duke Ellington, Nick Beggs on bass and Jeff Hamilton on drums. And we've also got Leanne Carroll on backup keys and vocals. And my gift to you is to review our <laughs> heady septet and you can change up to one <laughs> member of the band. Oh, that's that's an awful responsibility you're giving me there. <laughs> hey, it didn't stop it didn't stop my brother last week n- knocking out Jacko Pistorius and putting Nick, Nick Beggs from Kajagoogoo in. So <laughs> I I, th- I think you can you can operate with freedom. <laughs> yes, I see where he's coming from there. Well, can I add somebody rather than take anybody away? What we'll we'll we'll, we'll roll as an octet briefly and see what happens. Who and why? George Formby on ukulele. I love it. So adding humour, joy, and to your fam- familial roots, as, as you're explaining about a family of, uh, <laughs> of of entertainment and variety, certainly in the sort of the middle decades, George Formby is one of the precursors of it all, right? Oh yes. Hey, wow, George Formby has joined the band. We're loving it, and I'm not going to challenge it, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to let it be because that was awesome. <laughs> so. Eddie, thank you ever so much uh, for sharing your time today. You're welcome. And uh, we cannot wait to get you uh, to Watford at some point, hopefully in the future, and to hear more from the uh, from the from the recent project. Um, lovely listeners, if you've liked what you've heard, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you want to know more about Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website at watfordjazzjunction.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook or wherever else I've managed to sign up on social media. And remember, there ain't no better, there ain't no worse. Just music. Bye.